0: Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, well, well. No matter what people say, we were expecting huge improvements after all the things that happened during COVID, that people were overworked. And the numbers weren't good, looking good already before COVID. During COVID, kind of stabilized regarding burnout. But the expectation was for everybody, let's say that that this needs to improve. So we are learning as we go, this needs to improve. But I was reading just the the one journal, the American Psychological Association, that in 2023, survey discovered that 77% of employees report feeling burnout at work. So, and what is worse is that this is a significant increase from the 61% in 2018. So, things are not going better. There is something wrong. And, but nevertheless, a lot of companies are talking about it. They talk about every single program that they do in order to have programs regarding mindfulness, yoga, whatever it is that heals or helps the symptoms. But I have the impression that the origin of burnout goes beyond just the symptoms, healing the symptoms, but about the culture or systematic BS that organizations are doing on the way, how they treat people. I'm sorry, Ryan, to talk bluntly about it, but let me tell you a little bit more why Today, we have, as a guest, uh, uh, Ryan Renteria. Um, And the reason is because he has recently published a book that is called Lead Without Burnout, Growth with Less Stress for You and Your Team. And you would say, yeah, another book from a life coach. No, 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 no. no. Here, we have a different profile of, of people. This is the kind of profile of people who has gone through what is really a stress at work? Let me tell you a little bit about his profile and tell you how, how jealous I am about this profile. So he went into Stanford. The guy landed a job in Goldman Sachs. I tried to get into Goldman Sachs, guys. I couldn't get in. That's why I'm jealous. Then he has been constantly working with venture capitalists. You cannot imagine the lifestyle that these guys have. He has also been working, but that's a parenthesis where I need a little bit more of explanation from Brian. He has been working in sports. And that's something that I guess is also uh, stressful until he decided to be the founder of a leading executive coaching firm called Stretch 5. Look at uh, at the, 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 the pattern that we are going. So he goes from a highly competitive academical degree. Stanford is not easy to get in. Goldman Sachs, BC, until he decides that this is the moment to live another type of life. And that's why it is important to have someone who has gone through this process of a highly stressful and competitive environment in order to understand what the hell is burnout and why it hasn't been improving. So Ryan, thank you very much for being my guest. is there something that I have forgotten, and I want some explanations about your life uh, in the sports world?
1: Well, Ivan, uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to help, however I can, on the on the work culture front, and in terms of my background and and how it led to sports and things of that nature. So. After Goldman Sachs, I went to the hedge fund business, which is one of the more stressful businesses out there. And I worked for two two different hedge funds managing money. And I completely burnt out. I was doing well on the work front and very lucky to work with extremely talented people and to be performing well, but my life was a zero out of 10 in terms of nutrition and, and sleep and stress and things of that nature. And at that time, I really thought if I continue down this path, that I will fail in all the other areas of life that matter to me. And I really didn't have the leadership and cultural lessons at that time that would have made that path more feasible. And then I ended up, I took two years off to volunteer uh, completely with children of disadvantaged backgrounds. And then I worked my way into sports and became an advisor to the Indiana Pacers, helping the front office and coaching staff with trades and free agency and draft picks and upcoming opponent preparation and there's obviously a significant amount of stress there and once again i decided not to pursue a more all-encompassing role there because i didn't feel like i had the leadership lessons the cultural lessons to be able to balance that with with the priorities that i wanted in life and it's only many years later now i've been an executive coach to ceos for quite some time where i have put together sort of 20 years of studying and advising leaders and a framework for a much better quality of life, work-life balance, reduction in stress and burnout that allows you to also achieve your professional goals. And so that's kind of the the wind up and how we end up how we are here today. Uh,
0: Listen, just uh, uh, maybe I'm extrapolating my own experience. So when we are into a high pressure environment, Uh, we are the last to notice because we are always on adrenaline we are moving forward and and we are progressing and we find it we find it sometimes exciting as you said oh having like super clever people and so on and suddenly in fact the first voice that we hear is not our voice but we hear the voice of somebody who cares about us our wives our mothers uh, who tell us and you making it a little bit too much, I, and you never rest, or you look worried during the weekend, or you are, not, you are sleeping only three or four hours. Um, in your case, was it really your voice, or was it the voice of people that, who cared about you? I think in my situation,
1: this was before getting married, before having kids, and my parents were across the country in California while I was in New York, so it was really the voice of my body, speaking oh. to me saying there's so much connection between mind and body. Right. And so it was really saying to me, you can't continue to operate on this level. I had uh, hives across my arms, which I, I went to the doctor and said that those are stress hives. I was just physically breaking down. I wasn't in good shape. I wasn't eating. Well, I was exhausted. And it was really my body that just said, uncle, you can't continue to, to do it this way. And I think had I been further along in life, like some of the CEOs I work with, they get the messages more from their loved ones, whether it's their significant others or their kids that notice shorter fuses at home or a lack of presence or things of that nature, it, it might've come from them.
0: Mm. Uh, one of the things that I can remember back in the days when I was applying to Goldman Sachs, that I got to know what was, how much I could make as money in the first year and he was turning around the 200k and which by the way for just out of university people this is like what the hell this is a lot <laughs> 200k is the fix not even the variable the, the variable comes on top so <laughs> and that's related also to the reason why a lot of people wait so such a long time to get out of this vicious circle of 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 living a, an unhealthy life to or not being an, uh, able to recognize or saying i will recover later to postpone in fact a decision that that your body is pre- telling you so money could be one of the the reasons that the bullshit reasons that we tell ourselves to stay in a toxic environment uh how can people understand that that it goes beyond how can you how do you usually help people uh who has this this thing saying I, but I need that money my family needs the money I haven't paid off my mortgage or I, I need in the. US I know that you save for the uh for the education of your kids um and uh, so how can you remove this bias that you have that people have about money
1: yeah and I think Arthur C Brooks who's a expert on happiness Harvard professor has written several books calls it a toxic belief we just somewhere along the way, adopt this belief in our heads that we need X amount of dollars to drive X amount of happiness. And we get there. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't bring us the massive impact on happiness that we thought. And then we move the goalposts. We say, well, if I just achieve X dollars more, then I'll get to the happiness level. It's just never ending circle. And so the first thing I tell folks is study the research. There's just a significant amount of studies out there that show that money does not have the massive impact on happiness that you might anticipate it having. Sure, some level of money does incrementally add happiness, but there are caveats to that in terms of, are you happy to begin with? That's usually the case where those are the people that get the incremental benefit and just all the stresses that come with it. And so really understanding that the true drivers of long-term satisfaction in the workplace, much more so than compensation, are things like autonomy, the responsibility to own challenging work, work that has greater purpose, where we feel like we're contributing to something greater than ourselves. And so if you're not a CEO, I would say look very carefully for cultures that prioritize those things as you're evaluating your next job opportunity. And if you are a CEO, that's what I spend the bulk of my time uh, helping clients with is to try to execute those things in their culture. And I would encourage you to execute as much of those types of things into your culture as possible to really attract the A players. Um, And lastly, I would say in chapter one of the book, besides covering some of those studies about the tie between money and happiness, we lay out uh, various exercises like the values and vision exercise and the wheel of life exercise that really help you figure out what matters most to me over the long haul and where do I stand on those things now? And so it really takes a purposeful evaluation and analysis to get to that place where you start to prioritize other things when you're seeking employment.
0: (laughs) Uh, You are totally right. In fact, it's almost like our brain plays a trick that we have expectations and we think that when we reach these expectations, our level of happiness is going to increase. Uh, I mean, for anything, like when I get my title, my degree, uh, I will be happier. When I get married, I will be happier. When I get my Ferrari, I will be happier. But it doesn't happen. In reality, we are less happy than we expected. That's comment one. Comment two, I, I don't know if it is the same guy that you've mentioned, but I remember that somebody, I think also in Harvard, calculated the amount where the linearity between happiness and the incremental happiness and money was not linear anymore. When do you start plateauing? And somebody calculated like 70,000, around $70,000 per, per year, that this is the amount of money, the amount where happiness does not increase linearly with uh, with the money that you earn. So you, you incrementally, the extra dollar more makes you less happy than the dollar that you that you had before, where it's more about survival. So when you are covering covering the survival needs, then after that, in fact, you don't need that amount of money to to be satisfied of, of, your, of your life.
1: We actually talk about that study in, in chapter one of the book, and I, I believe it's Matthew Killingsworth. I'd have to check it. And I think it was at a University of, of Penn, um, out of Pennsylvania. Ooh, and it was interesting because he did outline a study and said there was no incremental improvement in happiness over 75000 And then some of those findings were challenged, and he, he came back out with another piece. And through all that, I think the conclusion from evaluating that along with other studies is there's some incremental improvement in happiness over time with more income, but it's not nearly as large as you think. And it really only benefits people that come into the situation already happy. It doesn't fix unhappiness. Exactly. And high earners report feeling greater amount of stress and pressure when they tie money and happiness together in their minds. And so I think those are some of the interesting dynamics around that.
0: I, I find it quite impressive, quite interesting that is that it's, it's, it's we are close to quantify happiness. I I hope that one day we will really have a model uh, for that. Ryan, so I told you at the beginning that I I'm a little bit critical sometimes for about what companies are really doing for uh, uh, in terms of well-being of the em- employees and and I have impression, but it's just an impression that there is a lot of companies that talk about. Burnout and well-being, but they talk about it. They're close to whitewashing their reputation by talking about it, but not doing the essentials. The essentials that are required in order to change a toxic environment. Knowing that a toxic environment, it doesn't mean that we are killing each other. It's not like I'm pretty sure that Goldman Sachs is not like a. There was good moments too but people was right. continuously in competition and there was maybe some bosses who were idiots and some bosses who were amazing but so are what is your take on that are companies just most of the companies are talking about it rather than doing
1: what do you I think? think it varies i think it varies quite a lot i know from from my experience the ceos that i work with were already prioritizing it before the last few years and have really increased their focus on it And I think there's also quite a lot of companies out there that think, well, if I just add a benefit here or there or talk about it a little more, then maybe I'm checking the box successfully. But really what they're not doing is addressing the fundamental underlying issues that are driving that burnout and that stress. And really that comes down to culture and leadership, and it starts at the top, but also it's various levels of, of managers that are involved in that process, and so I personally believe you absolutely can radically improve employee mental health and burnout without harming your business growth prospects. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but there are a number of studies out there that are supportive Ooh. of it. And you know, it's funny when I when I chose the title for the book "Lead Without Burnout," the first gut in that title is they think, "Well, gosh, I think he's going to write a lot about." sleep and meditation and nutrition and things of that nature. But top leaders know that you need to do more of those things to reduce burnout and stress. But it's really all about how do you create the time to execute upon those things without risking your business goals and your business prospects. And that comes down to leadership and culture to slash burnout. And that's really what the book is all about. And I think that those who recognize these types of changes that they need to make on that front are really going to win the war on talent.
0: Hmm. So, if I understand correctly, the, your book "Lead Without Burnout" is is a book that is targeted to CEOs uh, to prioritize a healthier way of living. Is that correct? Is for CEOs. It's I would say it targets CEOs
1: and other senior leaders, but that 80 to 90% of the book is highly applicable to folks that lead even small teams of at least one or two people. Yeah. And it really is around how do you create the culture, whether it's a CEO for an entire organization or somebody who's leading a team of three people for their unit, how do you create the culture that is much more mental health friendly and prioritizes well-being more? That's going to attract that top talent, those A players, and that's going to allow you to trust and delegate to those high quality employees that is is really exciting to them to take ownership and autonomy and responsibility off of your plate. And that's going to free you up to both mentally recharge and have time for more work-life balance and also for more deep strategic thinking about how to drive the business over the long haul. And then you're going to be able to coach and mentor the folks below you, and they're going to do it for the folks below them, and there's going to be this trickle down effect throughout the entire culture. Lastly, people say, "Well, if you just keep shoving responsibility down the chain, are you just ultimately going to be burning out people lower uh, lower level?" But there's an entire chapter in the book on decision making, an entire chapter in the book on productivity, and I think so much of stress and burnout and wasted time comes from poor decision-making and all the fires that you have to put out and inefficient use of time. And so if you can coach everyone else in the organization on those things, then you're gonna free up time for mental recharging for everybody in the organization.
0: When you were writing the book, did you put the hat of this efficiency Goldman Sachs eyes about financial return on investment? Or how did you balance that? Because you cannot get rid of it. It is what it is. You went into that school. That's how you stayed. How did you do it while writing?
1: I think the irony is is that being more efficient actually facilitates a culture of more work-life balance, because if you really focus on things like the 80-20 rule and the Eisenhower matrix, to better dedicate your time and your priorities to the top three things that move the needle, you're gonna end up naturally more efficient and freeing up more time, which you can either spend on high value things like deep strategic thinking about markets and geographies and customer preferences and technological shifts and what's really gonna drive the business on a five-year basis, or time for work-life balance and mental recharging that's gonna make you even more productive and more efficient when you come in for work the next day and tackle those top three important items on your to-do list.
0: Mm. Uh, so technically what you're saying, and I think it's a couple of chapters that touch base on, on, on the topic of uh, efficiency. Uh, is it feasible to work in a fast-paced environment like, let's say a tech startup or a consulting business or Goldman Sachs for uh, that matter, and, and be genuine on the well being of people. Is that? Absolutely.
1: Possible?
0: How Absolutely. do you, Ryan? So, uh,
1: number one, it starts with creating a culture of trust. Because when you create a culture of trust, you're going to attract the top talent, the A players onto your team, and their well being goes up significantly. When you give them autonomy, responsibility, ownership over challenging work that has higher purpose. So I think that's the first thing that I would highlight. The second thing is just because you're in a fast paced culture doesn't mean you can't utilize techniques such as empathy, recognition, calm demeanor, and things of that nature that really help reduce burnout and stress. Those don't take significant incremental time uh, to do. And third, as I mentioned before, giving them the elite productivity and decision-making tools and coaching them in, in those areas so that they're more efficient and have fewer fires to, to really waste their time putting out. Those are all going to contribute to improved well-being, even amongst a very high-pressure, fast-paced environment.
0: And you know what? Uh, I, I'm tying up with something that you, that you were saying at the beginning about this attraction of talent. Um, this consulting firm Deloitte started playing the, uh, the card of well-being quite early, like even just, just before COVID, they started already talking about it, which made, made them the first one to talk about it because still now like, and com- compared to other, uh, cons- strategic consulting companies that they, 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 they're having an edge and they, and they are capable of attracting more Gen Z's that, be, than other companies, it's still a challenge. I've been talking with HR people from Bain and BCG, still a challenge because they still have the stigma of being idiots of productivity only. Uh, so And Deloitte got rid of that, that thing. And they are attracting. There is a lot of young people who would prefer to go there. And, and it and is very challenging for these Bains and, uh, uh, and BCG. I think McKinsey got a twist a little bit earlier also. Uh, they did b- more, better slides than uh, that Deloitte, and uh, they could also convince other people that they were working on it. There is, there is a, a common a, a sizable impact in terms of attraction of of talent, and God knows that in these environments where there is a lot of stress, you need youth, and but youth now has a choice. Now it's not like in my times where it was money first, status second, and perks uh, in number three. For them, these things have are in number four or five. So well-being, having a har- uh, harmony in their lives, it is so important that they, they don't care anymore to have the rep- the reputation of McKinsey if they think that they're going to be overused. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I believe uh, there was a study that showed that 87% of Gen Z would switch jobs if a company's values were more aligned with theirs than their current company and i think that gen z is probably the best at putting a priority on work-life balance and mental health and so the companies that are out there not just talking about it but actually showing it and modeling it to their employees who then become great sources of referrals right so everyone can talk the big game but if your employees are basically out there telling their friends yeah this this company is actually living what it's saying and my well-being has gone up significantly and there's a huge priority on that and we're still dominating from a business perspective and we found this sort of secret sauce and this flywheel momentum they're much more likely to recommend their friends apply there, and referrals are obviously the best source. It's much cheaper, and they're more likely to take your offer. So all of this creates this this flywheel of momentum.
0: Exactly, exactly. It's it's a little bit. I mean, it's sometimes a little bit funny to work with Gen Z. I I work with certain Gen Z. Like sometimes I I have the feeling that they they are not listening to me because at the same time they're writing something on their mo- on their mobile. But the guys, <laughs> when they have an opinion, they are so, uh, they, they they really want to be heard. It's, it's like in my times, I had to shut up if I, if I was uh, in front of a senior person. They don't shut up. They, they just go <laughs> and nail it. Hey, it's incredible. But it's such a pleasure to see that the difference is just that the, the difference on attitudes that they have doesn't make that they are, Less efficient than others. It just looks for other generations different, but it's not less efficient. And indeed, they value well-being. <laughs> well, and I think it was it was actually quite recently where
1: Slack, I think it was Slack workforce, they they put out a study that basically showed that those that shut off their their work and their phones at a certain point in the evening and basically encouraged employees to do that rather than be access accessible at all hours actually had significantly greater productivity. So what I don't want people to think is, oh, this is all about being soft and people not working hard and my business is gonna suffer if I go down this path and and counterintuitive, but it's the opposite. Productivity is more likely to actually go up when you have folks that are engaged, mentally refreshed and not burnt out from being accessible at all
0: hours. (laughs) Um. Exactly in the same area, there is also the studies by country where, for instance, I live very close to France. So we make fun of the French. So because they they work less number of hours than the Swiss. But in mm-hmm. terms of productivity, they are one of the top. They are in the top three of more productive countries in the world. And then you look at the Japanese. And by the way, I can talk about it also because I'm married to one of them. Uh, <laughs> And the guys overwork all the time, but they are not in the top 20 in productivity. <laughs> Can you imagine? They spend hours and hours just for the hell of it. And these French guys with their accents, fancy accents, are, 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 are being more productive. It's almost counterintuitive.
1: <laughs> That's right. And I think I think the key to capturing that is really embracing the 80-20 rule. And that is that 80% of your outcome come from 20% of your inputs. Mm. And you can apply that to many different areas. 80% of your profitability comes from 20% of your customers. 80% of your productivity comes from 20% of your employees. And so I think the more you can get your employees to embrace and and teach them in what are the top three things that are going to move the needle the most in terms of our long-term EBITDA cash flow returns on capital, And how do we prioritize those and not so much on all the other things that don't move the needle? And I have a a whole chapter in the book on cultural bylaws and and really sort of forming this document that helps establish those 80-20 priorities for employees, which makes it easier for them to make decisions when they know kind of the constituencies and how they're rank ordered and things of that nature. But really that that 20 rule I think is extraordinarily powerful for mm-hmm. this whole concept we're talking about with greater productivity while not uh, destroying yourself from a, from an hours and a, uh, logistics perspective.
0: The beauty about the 8020 rule is that you can decide what is the parameter that <clears throat> you consider really satisfaction. So for some of the uh, of the people, It would be let's say profitability or revenues or growth or market share but you can also decide that these are the things that are most important that will make me more satisfied in the day because i i also try to apply it in terms of my life in a day-to-day basis if i do these three things i'm going to have 80 percent of my satisfaction which is just (laughs) like being happy the rest it doesn't matter or it matters less i have my decision-making would be like three things that are a priority for my day that will make me super happy. That combines a little bit of family as well as my entrepreneurial journey. So that's...
1: Right. Well, that's really where we get to the values and vision exercise and the wheel of life exercise because the values and vision exercise asks you a set of questions about what you want to achieve professionally and personally. What are the values that are underlying your decision to highlight those things. And then the wheel of life sort of looks at eight different areas of life and how you're stacking up in those areas. And how does that jibe with your answers to your values and visions exercise? And I think a core thesis of the book is that it's impossible to be a 10 out of 10 in every area of life. And it's really perfectionism that type A hardworking, successful people have that often drives the stress and the burnout and so, how do you become an eight or nine out of ten in the two to four areas that matter the most to you? And that's really what it's all about.
0: This is uh, this is great. Um, listen, accepting so to to drive the change in terms of uh, the perception uh, or to prioritize well being. Uh, human centricity in, in a corporation or, or a culture that can be non-toxic. Um, mm-hmm. the, I have the impression that the usual tools like, I don't know, corporate trainings, uh, yeah. do not bring any value. Um, then the, there is the, the approach of saying, yeah, everybody needs like a coach. Well, it's not scalable. It's going to cost me a fortune uh, <laughs> if, I, if I have a coach for every senior management team. Uh, so, it seems to me that the ap- application of, of, of the traditional methods that we had pre-COVID uh, is not working. Uh, and a lot of the things that we have to learn, like, I don't know, resilience, uh, it, it will be a matter of practice. It's not a matter anymore of having 20 slides and something building exercise. And <laughs> no, you don't learn stuff. It's not by knowing that, that you will... Become better with yourself. You need practice. So how do you convince uh, one? Is it worthwhile to look for alternative uh, approaches? I don't know. We talk about mindfulness. We talk about frequent small breaks. But sometimes it is difficult to convince people because they're used to these bullshit training courses. Uh, uh. (laughs) So what is your take on on, on this alternative well-being approaches that that we can have not only to uh, as a healing mode but also as a prevention and of course there is a little bit like working in the essentials in the infrastructure the culture of the of the organization what is, what is your take on that
1: well i would say first study the research the research is extraordinarily supportive of mindfulness 10 to 15 minute breaks every 45 to 60 minutes of straight work, uh, naps, well, I, I work in my home office and I, if I get a rough night of sleep and my circadian rhythms dip during that one to 4 PM lull, I know I can take a twenty, a 10 to 20 minute power nap and radically bolster my, bolster my productivity for the rest of the day. And some companies might think, well, do I really want people taking naps around the office? Absolutely. It's it's very positive for productivity exercise, nutrition, things of that nature. So be both selfless in empowering the people on your team or your organization to engage in some of those things that's going to bolster your well-being. But you're also being selfish because the productivity and their engagement is actually going to go up by allowing those things to happen. Hmm. Uh,
0: that's uh, that's uh, that's correct. Uh, I uh, still it's going to take some time so that people uh, really understand the, uh, the 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 power of of, of alternative, uh, alternative alternative solutions even though even though there is the um, information out, out there about the impact of nutrition the impact of of mini mini breaks is in the mindset of people they prefer to see someone playing around with one slide for two hours because you have become <laughs> numb because your brain is dead because that has happened to people. And you looked busy. <laughs> yeah, you're looking busy. That is going to be rewarded. But taking my five minutes nap, oh, that it is completely sinful in, in, in the workplace. And, and there is a lot of people still who has big uh, challenges to, uh, to, uh, to understand that.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think also the number one most important takeaway in all of this is that none of these things are really going to move the needle substantially unless you work on the systemic challenges, the structural parts of your organization. And that's, that's the culture. Mm -hmm. And, and I would say there's a few elements of that. And number one, I keep going back to the culture of trust where letting go is the key to grow. Do you have a culture of trust that attracts those A players Do you micromanage and control them and and are you deep in their weeds or are you trusting them with the autonomy and the responsibility to run with things which are going to drive their long-term satisfaction much more so than compensation? And number two, do you have a culture of candor and psychological safety? Do people feel like they can speak up with their ideas? Do you make definitive statements that shoot them down or do you ask open-ended questions and show how you incorporated their viewpoints in your decision tree. And I think third on the mental health side, it's not just about the, the mindfulness and the breaks and and the nutrition, things of that nature, but it's about how you treat employees. And it's not this general, well, I'm nice to my employees. Is We're talking about very specific things that take it to the next level. And that's empathy, recognition, and a calm demeanor when there are mistakes and being able to separate whether those mistakes were due to something that went wrong in their process, which is a teaching moment, or an unlucky outcome that was really out of their control. Those types of things, changing the culture of your organization or your group to prioritize those things, are going to win all day long over an extra training here and there.
0: Hmm. You made me think that uh, the fact that you have been also working in the area of sports, that has given you access also to observe how coaches... Uh drive their teams. I, I, because I remember that I read a book called The Culture Code. I don't remember who wrote it. Uh, the culture was so code is co- one of the
1: single best books ever written yeah. on culture. Daniel Coyle is the author. Yes. It's phenomenal. Exactly,
0: Ryan. Exactly. And I remember so many examples coming from sports, coming even from the military. I mean, uh, against any military, but yes, the examples were super good, uh, given in the uh uh in the book. In your personal experience while you were working did you have access to observe how these guys have this power of nudging people to take the best
1: 100 percent. i worked very closely with one of the top coaches in the nba frank vogel when he was coach of the pacers and he went on to win a championship with the lakers during one of the most difficult environments where they were in the bubble in florida and they couldn't leave the bubble. Was during COVID. And, and he won a championship during that time with the Lakers. And, and now he's coaching the Suns. And he, he sort of had Ted Lasso's style of leadership before it became popularized on the TV show, where he was an extraordinarily positive guy. He wasn't the guy to, to get in your face and scream and yell. And he was he was always so encouraging. He trusted in his players and his staff. And he created that environment where people could speak up and give their opinions. And he was very humble about receiving and incorporating those opinions. And so here's a guy coaching some of the most stressed out, highest performing folks in the world and using what historically would be considered an unconventional leadership approach to very successfully coach those individuals and win a championship. And I learned so much from him and it is really inspired a lot of the lessons in my book, and I'm very thankful I was able to work with him.
0: Oh, that's amazing. That's an additional reason why we should go, I think it is in Amazon, Lead Without Burnout, the book, Growth With Less Stress for you and your team. So I'm going to be putting the the link just below this, uh, this episode so that you have just to click and find out if this is a book for you. Ryan, how do we make it possible so that people who want to learn more about leading in the best way, uh, how can they reach you out?
1: Yeah, if you go to leadwithoutburnout.com, there'll be a lot of information on the book there, and there'll be a link to, to Amazon. And I think it's important for people to know that All profits from the book will be donated to mental health charities like Mindshare Partners, which is one of the only ones that focuses on mental health in the workplace specifically. So I encourage you to read the book, send me an email. My CEO coaching site is thestretch5.com, thestretch5.com. And yeah, I just hope we can all embrace this type of purposefulness in our leadership and our lives.
0: I, I really hope that this becomes a, a a reality. There are, there is progress, but uh, the numbers, as I, I spoke at the beginning, it was not really great. After all, so much fuss about burnout that the numbers are still not good in twenty twenty three. Uh, hopefully, twenty twenty four is going to be the, the the time where a lot of CEOs are going to, uh, and. And I guess also partially because of your book, they're going to rationalize the decision on investing in mental health as a strategy to for higher growth. That is not something that is just to to pacify a little bit the HR person. <laughs> right. That's right. Ryan. That's exactly right. <laughs> it was lovely to spend time with you. Thank you very much for making the time for, uh, for the Growth Hacking Culture podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. I had a blast. Thanks for having me. Thanks.